Good morning, everybody. Good to see everybody here this morning. Hey, I have some good news for you. We are out of the book of Job. Uh, We will not be going back there anytime soon. Uh, We're done talking about suffering for a while. Uh, We're going to be in the book of 1 John, actually, the next uh, five weeks, next four weeks. Yeah, next five weeks. Uh, I'll be gone one week for a mission trip, but uh, we will be there the next four sermons for sure. Um, So yeah, mark that in in your book, uh, in your Bible, if you brought that with you. We're going to be in 1 John chapter 1, verses 5 through 10. Uh, You can mark that. If you didn't bring your Bible, uh, it will be on the screen behind me when we get to that point. So now that uh, I am a a father, uh, I don't have a lot of time to watch um, television. I want to. If the TV is on, it's usually some sort of cartoon or something. Uh, I get to watch games and stuff like that, but I don't really get into any shows uh, but the shows that the one show that I really ever got into, like became a big fan of, huge fan of, to the point where I bought seasons on DVD. And don't hold this against me; I'm not recommending it or anything like that. But rather confessing and letting you know, uh, Seinfeld is one of my absolute favorites. And I've had a lot of conversations with people uh, over the years about uh, whether that or Friends is the best sitcom of the 90s. Now, I know many of you might not be, might not be fans of either one of those, so bear with me for just a second. Um, not only do I think Seinfeld is better than, than Friends and the best sitcom of the 90s, I think it's probably the best of all time in my opinion. No, it's not probably. It is the best of all time in my humble opinion. Uh, it, it was true to life, uh, different, different characters, great characters. But I've got to be honest with you in that and admit that even though I say that and even though I've had not heated fun disagreements with people over which is better I have never really sat down and watched the entire full episode of Friends now again don't hold that against me 90s people in the house nor have I watched an entire episode of MASH or the Andy Griffith show or many of the other shows that people put on their list of best sitcoms ever. I've watched bits and pieces of each of those episodes and passed through them on television, but I've never sat and watched an actual whole episode. But I assume in my infinite 34-year-old wisdom that the show that I believe is the best is, of course, the best sitcom of all time, even though my information is limited. And a lot of times we make guesses, not guesses. We form opinions and we make statements of belief based on information that is lacking. That maybe we have a favorite music or a favorite food or a favorite such and such that we will stand behind and say that this is the best and nothing else can beat it when we haven't tried many of the other things that people say can beat it. Or maybe it's something that's not so trivial. Maybe it's something much more important, like a matter of faith like some sort of big political issue at work in the world around us, we have an opinion, but we've never really considered that we might be wrong. That somebody else could actually be right. I know, that's a a place that our mind doesn't normally go to consider that we might actually have limited information on a particular issue or that the opinion that we have formed might be less than right all the time. If you think that there is no way you could be wrong, you're wrong. We are human beings, and our minds are limited. Scripture clearly tells us that. The quickest way to ensure that you're wrong is to believe that you can't ever be wrong. And the people to whom John writes his first epistle that we call 1 John had this very problem. Or many of them did. The community to which he is writing 
John was riding into a community, a community of faith, a community that he had helped found. And this is the same John that wrote the Gospel of John. And in this community, they had just lost a good chunk of their membership, if you will. A good group of people that belonged to this community of confessing faith in Jesus had been led astray by false teaching. A teaching that centered on the denial of Jesus being fully human. There was a teaching that ran amok in in, in this setting as well as in other settings throughout the first century that people taught that the flesh or the material is somehow dirty or somehow ungodly to the point that God didn't really dwell physically in a man, but rather Jesus came and maybe he appeared to be a man but wasn't really. And so they reject the whole idea of the incarnation, that God could become man because God would not descend to such depths, even though Paul and others uh, completely go against that with their writings, including here in 1 John. That's why John begins with the words in 1 John that talking about the word that was professed to them, the word that they saw, the word that they heard, the word that they touched with their own hands. John wants to make it a point from the very beginning of this letter as well as in his gospel when he says that the word was made flesh in talking about Jesus. He wants to make it a point from the very beginning to show that these teachers are wrong and that Jesus was actually a man. But the deeper issue behind that one particular issue is that these people who had stepped away from the community to which 1 John is writing, to which John is writing in this epistle, these false teachers believed that they were above everyone else, that they had some sort of secret knowledge that no one else had access to. And because of their keen intellect, They were able to raise themselves to a level that normal folks, normal Christians, couldn't ascend to. Those with elementary Christian beliefs, like the existence of sin and the power that it has over us. Those with elementary Christian beliefs, such as ethical behavior is important. The people to whom John was writing, many of them seemed to reject these ideas, as we'll see in the passage that we read this morning thinking that they could be to the point where they were so mature in their faith and so separated from this flesh that had them held down, this this evil part of existence, that they were beyond sin and that their behavior wasn't that important. And so for these reasons, John focuses this letter on the importance of finding truth in Jesus Christ alone, of walking in the light in that way along with a clear emphasis of the need to walk in that light, to have good morals and behave in an ethically pure way, especially in the way that we treat one another. Because there were people in this group that because they thought themselves so above had evidently stopped loving their brothers and sisters in Christ. John viewed himself as a father figure to many of these. As a matter of fact, several times in his letters, he calls the people to whom he is writing, my little children or my beloved children. In a way, John is going back to the basics of what it means to believe in and follow Jesus. You might even say that he's going back to the ABCs of Christianity. The ABCs of Christianity, we have our own version of that in the Baptist world, especially when it comes to Vacation Bible School, for a gospel presentation 
to admit that you're a sinner, believe in Jesus Christ that God raised him from the dead, and then to confess that to other people. This is what we tell children and others when we present the gospel and the basic truths of Scripture. So I want to go back to that main, that first point, that first basic in the ABCs this morning that stands for admit. And the thrust that I want you to leave with is that you're a sinner, admit it already. All of us are. And John deals with this in 1 John chapter 1, verses 5 through 10. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. John, speaking to these people who have been led astray, who think that the material, the flesh, is somehow evil, who want to contend that they are above and they have a secret knowledge to the point where they raise above these ethical teachings of the way we should treat one another, begins with a focus on God, begins with the message that he and others have been proclaiming from the beginning, that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. God is the sole source of all that is good, We've gone over this several times, and you see it many places in Scripture. Light is a symbol for good. Light is a symbol for God. But also in this respect today, light is not only important for those reasons, but it's also important in that it illuminates everything. And that if you shine a bright enough light at something, you will see it for what it really is. You will see the truth. God is that same kind of light. And that he reveals all truth. He exposes all truth. And in him there is no darkness at all. God has a monopoly on truth. If truth comes from anywhere else other than God, if someone says, this is my truth, and I'm not just talking about a true statement like this carpet is green. I'm talking about the deep truths in life that drive us. If someone comes to us with another truth, about how the world works, about how the world was made, about the way we should treat one another, about where we're going after we die, or answering these big life questions. If someone comes to us with a truth that is not founded in Scripture, that truth is not true, it is a lie, because God has a monopoly on the truth. And he is completely devoid of darkness and falsehood. There is nothing deceptive about God. There is nothing dark about God. There is nothing false about what God has to say. And in that same vein, we cannot claim, as John would say, to follow him and walk in darkness. In other words, John is telling those to whom he is writing, our behavior is important. Now, let me stop here for a second and and camp out on this idea for just a moment. Because there is a teaching or a thought process in the church in the world today that is somewhat similar to what John is dealing with here in 1 John. To where some think that our behavior 
really isn't that important. What's important is what you believe. And ultimately, what you believe is the most important thing. That if you believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, that God raised him from the dead, this is what brings salvation. Those things are the most important things. But there is, again, a stream in our culture today, in our Christian culture, that wants to minimize the importance of right behavior, of living in a godly manner, of loving each other, brothers and sisters in Christ, of loving the unlovable, the people with whom we violently disagree. There is a stream that says, as long as you think the right things, believe the right things, it doesn't really matter what you do. But good works, proper living, always follow true faith in Christ, in Scripture. We look at Paul, we look at James, we look at Jesus. Anywhere that there is the source of God within us, good fruit will be produced. This is the testimony of the New Testament. One cannot champion the truth and a lie at the same time. We can't champion the cause of Christ and live a life that contradicts his teaching. Now, on the other hand, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, John says, we will walk in freedom from that sin, we will be forgiven, and we will live in unity with one another. Now, John goes a different direction than you would think he might go if you're just kind of following along. He's talking about the importance of behavior and how we should walk in light, we should stay away from sin, yet he follows that up with, if you say you have no sin, you have deceived yourself. He repeats it again a little bit more boldly later in the verses that we read where he says, if you say you have not sinned, then you make God a liar. Scripture testifies to our sinfulness. Romans 3.23, the most famous, that all of us have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. That's one among many. Mark 10.18 Uh, And the other two synoptic gospels have this same story. Jesus uh, says that no one is good except God alone at one point when he is called a good teacher. Psalm 14.3 says that there is no one who does good, not even one. There is none righteous, not even one. Isaiah 53.6, another example, talks about how all we like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned our own way. We all fall short. We all sin. God knows you better than you do. His scripture is very clear that all of us have fallen short of God's glory and that, as I said at the beginning, you're a sinner. Admit it already. Now, as I was talking about this kind of stream that goes throughout our culture, there is a resistance to that label. And I understand it. It comes from a good place. I've had long conversations with people about this throughout the time that I've been in ministry, where are we really a sinner, or are we something else now? We might say that instead of a sinner, we're a saint who sins every now and then, right? Maybe you've heard it proclaimed in that way, that sin no longer defines the nature of who we are, but it sometimes defines the things which we do. 
Now, I agree with that. Theologically, that's a good, strong, biblical idea on this side of Jesus. Our nature is different. Something about us is a new creation, as Paul would say. The old man has passed away and the new has come. We are no longer that same creature that we once were. And so maybe then we don't want to call ourselves sinner anymore. I I had one conversation with a gentleman, a a great, well-intentioned gentleman who treated people well, who lived the life that that I would want to live when I am that old. And and, and, and he he had some teaching in his life. He watched a lot on television, but he had some teaching in his life that kind of led him down this wrong path. And he had a conversation with me one day after church about how people in his Sunday school class and people in his church would ask for forgiveness in their prayers. God, forgive us of our sins, and he would come to me and he would say, why are we doing that? Because we've been separated from our sin. We shouldn't have to ask for forgiveness anymore. His point was that if we ask for forgiveness once because of what Jesus did on the cross, all of our sins are forgiven, and we should never have to ask for it again, because sin no longer defines us. Again, Theologically, I see the beauty of that idea that your sin no longer defines who you are, that God's sacrifice was good to cover your sin once and for all. I get that, but I can't get away from the way that Jesus told us to pray. Forgive us our trespasses. So just as we forgive those who trespass against us, that it is a part of what we do. And elsewhere in Scripture, James, for instance, tells us to confess our sins to one another. It is taught throughout Scripture the importance of owning our sin just as it is here in 1 John. So look, semantics, we could talk about it all day. Are we sinners? Are we saints who sin? Are we sinners who do good sometimes? Are we sinners who are saved? So on and so forth. But practically speaking, by the way that we behave, we are all sinners. And can we, I think we can agree on that. I don't know if, if, about you, but I hung out with me this past weekend. And I sinned a couple times, two or three, maybe a few more that I didn't even notice. Maybe you as well. Maybe everybody else has been cool and, and you don't have anything to ask forgiveness about or, or no sinful thoughts or behaviors or emotions or feelings or words that came out of your mouth. No sinful secret ideas or thoughts in your head that nobody else knows about. Surely you lived a perfect weekend. How about a perfect week or a perfect life? You're a sinner. Admit it already. No one is perfect. Despite what we might present to the rest of the world and our social media accounts or the way that we dress up nicely on Sundays and answer the how are you question with I'm great, how are you? No one is perfect. No one has it all together. And there are some dangers to playing the game that we have it all together. And look, the people that John is talking to in 1 John, I think they were masters at playing the game. Now this is early in the church. And it shows you how quickly things can go south when things are left in human hands. This is very quick. This is the same. John was alive with Jesus. He was one of Jesus' apostles. And in his lifetime, there is a group of people that need to be called out for thinking that they're better than everybody because they have reached some sort of spiritual epiphany and realized something that nobody else has, that they are somehow better than everybody else. That doesn't exist in 2017, right? 
There's no Christian or no person that believes that because of their certain set of beliefs or because of their behavior or their knowledge of Scripture or their involvement in Sunday school or in church that they are better than everyone else. Surely nobody around us believes that today. Certainly not me. I am humble. I have been in church a long time, so much so that I've built up a humility of which I'm extremely proud. Anybody else identify with that? You're a sinner. Admit it already. And if you don't admit it, some dangerous things could happen. Your faith suddenly becomes about you and what you've done. When you tell people about your faith walk, what is it going to be? Oh, this is how many times I've read through Scripture. And this is good. These are good things. Don't say that they're not. You should do these things. But when someone asks you about your faith, it's going to become about the things that you've done. It's going to become about how much you go to church or what church you go to or how involved you are and how many things you do and, and all of these different things that you do when in reality the first thing about our faith ought to be what Jesus has done for us. The fact that he plucks us out of the fire and out of the mire and saved us from a disaster of which we could not save ourselves picked us up when we were totally, utterly helpless. That ought to be the first word when it comes to our faith life. Other dangers are that you begin to compare yourselves usually favorably to others. Think about that for a second. We compare ourselves to others all the time. I know this is the world we live in. I do the same thing in my own mind. When I begin to compare myself to someone who I know is doing better than me in a certain area, I immediately switch my mind to someone that I know I'm doing better than in a certain area to make myself feel better, just as the people in 1 John did. And perhaps one of the most disastrous dangers is that you begin to, if you think that you have risen to a level where you are better than others, where sin is no longer a struggle for you, you begin to ignore hidden darkness within you to potentially disastrous results. It's like the individual who has this nagging physical problem that they refuse to go see the doctor about. It's there, it's bothering them, something is going on, they need to go see a doctor, and the only time that they see a doctor is when they're taken in an ambulance to see him, and suddenly things are too far gone to do anything about. Spiritually, we run the same risk when we act like everything is fine, like we have this figured out. Like we have reached a certain level because we've been Christians X number of years that we are no longer sinners and no longer in need of daily confession, repentance, and following Jesus as Savior. You ignore disastrous things that could be brewing within you, sins that you think you are above and beyond that could wreak havoc in your life and the life of your family and in your church if you continue to ignore And you buy into the us versus them mentality as well. That's the final danger. Think about our modern climate. Say climate, I mean the way that we treat one another. On political issues, on sports issues, on any kind of issues on which you can take a side. 
People are taking sides, not considering what the other person might have to say, assuming that we know better, and again, violently, angrily defending our position because we know more, because we have knowledge that no one else does. It's exactly what it did with the people to whom John was writing. They had gotten so full of themselves and believed so strongly in their own goodness that they walked away from their community of faith. They went and started their own community. Sound familiar? We do that a lot in our world today. Just as there is dangers of playing the game, there is beauty and honesty. There is beauty in the vulnerability that comes with admitting you're a sinner. One of those beauties is that when we admit our own sinfulness, it disarms others. You know, when you're in an argument, I know none of you get in arguments, but when you're in an argument with someone, one of the easiest ways to diffuse the situation is to admit your own fault. To show where you have messed up. And there is so much of our world today that is grasping for answers in all sorts of different directions. And if they look at the church and they see a group of fake people that think they that act like they have it all together, act like everything is fine, they're gonna see a group of people that they cannot identify with, that are beyond them. And maybe that's sometimes how we want to be seen. But instead, if we own our own sinfulness, perhaps we will be seen as someone with whom they can identify. If we own our own problems, if we own our own uh, addictions or regrets, maybe someone who is not yet a believer, who is in the midst of that sinful lifestyle, will look to us and say that this person has been there, this person understands the struggle, and we're able to find their way through it. It disarms other people and gives them someone with whom they can identify when we are honest about our own fallenness. Our faith becomes not about us, but about God, primarily, in everything that we do. When we admit that we're a sinner, we are telling the world around us that we cannot save ourselves, and we are in need of someone else, and his name is Jesus. Another beauty of admitting our own sinfulness is that all sin, even that dark, hidden one within you, all sin is brought to light. And when sin falls under the ultraviolet light of Jesus Christ, it is sucked of all its energy and it dies a quick death. When it is exposed to light, where it suffocates, its power is taken away from it. And finally, you realize there is one team, that we are all on the same side, that we have the same enemy. It is sin. It is evil at work within us. We join that one team, and we fight against it despite our differences. And if you admit, if you admit already that you're a sinner, John tells us that if you confess that God is faithful to forgive, to cleanse you of all unrighteousness, So as I've been saying, you're a sinner admitted already. But the second truth is you're a sinner, but Jesus is Savior. He takes that away. Rest in what he's done, not what you are doing. And So again, our takeaway this morning 
from the first chapter of 1 John, and it will be much this way throughout the entire book. It's to admit it already. To live in the reality that we are a sinner, but Jesus is Savior. That we are never going to get to a point where we are not in need of our Savior's help. That every day we wake up, we need the grace of Jesus Christ to get through that day, to get through a difficult moment in that day, or simply to be obedient to what he has called us to that day. You are a sinner, but Jesus is Savior. So walk in the light of truth. Confess to Jesus and to one another, and he will be faithful and just to forgive you and to cleanse you of all unrighteousness. But please don't do what the people to whom First John is writing in First John are doing. Don't act like everything is fine when it is not. Don't buy into this lie. It is not from Jesus. It is from darkness. Don't buy into this lie that because you are a Christian, because you go to a church, because you go to a First Baptist church, that you have to have everything together and that everybody around you needs to think that you have it all figured out. I know that you buy into this lie because I buy into this lie way too often. And it is such a waste of time and energy to try to convince everybody else that I can save myself when I know that I can't. When I know that I'm unable of saving myself. We admit that Every time we ask for the grace of Jesus, why can't we admit that to one another? Why can't we own that we don't have it all figured out? That we might need to ask someone for help. Because if you walk in the light as he is in the light, you will not only dwell with him, but you will dwell in unity with one another. We can get past all of these fake things, all of these masks, see each other for who we really are. I know a scary thought when you first think about it, but the person that I know best on this planet, I know her faults, I know her insecurities, is my wife, and I love her more than I love any of you. Sorry, I hate to tell you that. I love her more than I do any other person on this planet, even though I know the worst things there are to know about her. It's not going to cause us to not love each other unless our heart is in a wrong place if we know each other well. If we admit that we're a sinner, admit it already, Jesus will be faithful and just to forgive you and we can live in a unity that we cannot live in when we stand behind masks every day. Those separate and divide. You're a sinner, admit it already, but Jesus is Savior. He can cleanse us of that sin, and he can take all of us sinners and turn us into the church of Jesus Christ. Beautiful, powerful, beyond measure force on this planet. I want to be a part of that. I want to sign up for that. I hope you do as well, but it starts with walking in the light, honoring truth, and being true about who we really are. Sinners, constantly in need of the grace of Jesus Christ. During our time of invitation this morning, I will be down here to pray with you if there's anything you want to pray about. If there's anybody here this morning that has never given their lives to Jesus, never asked him to save you from your sin, to cleanse you from unrighteousness, I would love to tell you about what that looks like. I would love to lead you in a prayer that would ask him into your life. 
you want to do that, you can come down during this time of invitation. You can find me after the service as well. I'll be hanging around down here at the front. But wherever you are, whatever spiritual place you're in, I pray that during this time, you own your sin. You ask God again to forgive you. Yes, he already has. That is semantics. Scripture tells us to confess and ask forgiveness. Dwell in the freedom that his forgiveness offers. Be cleansed of unrighteousness and realize that, yes, you're a sinner, but Jesus is your Savior and you are saved. Let's stand together. The altar is open. I'm here to pray with you. I'm going to lead us in prayer. Then Bill and Lynn are going to lead us in a song of invitation. And you move in whatever way God is calling. Father, again, we thank you for who you are. For the truth that you offer us. For the light that you shine upon us that brings everything out of darkness and into light. God, it is scary sometimes when light is shined on my sinfulness. Yet at the same time, Lord, I know it's scarier when it hides in the darkness. So God, I thank you for the tough and difficult moments of self-awareness that come with truth. God, I thank you for not only making me aware of those sins, but more importantly, forgiving me of those sins, cleansing me from those sins, making me new. God, I pray that you would help us as a community of faith and as individual believers be honest with ourselves, be honest with you, and be honest with each other about our sinfulness and our need for your grace. God, may we revel in that grace together as your church. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.